This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 14th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. It's the 14th of January. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with journalist Terry Stiastany. Chris Chermak tries to make sense of current American politics by examining history. And Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about the stories we might have missed. We learned that Congressman McCarthy will be the new Speaker of the House of Representatives only after 15 goddamn rounds of voting. That's all coming up right here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Iran has executed British-Iranian national Alireza Akbari, the judiciary's Mizan news agency reported today, after sentencing the former Iranian deputy defence minister to death on charges of spying for Britain. President Joe Biden told Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on Friday that the United States was fully, thoroughly, completely committed to Japan's defence and praised Tokyo's security build-up, saying the nations had never been closer. Indonesia has deployed a warship to its North Natuna Sea to monitor a Chinese Coast Guard vessel that's been active in a resource-rich maritime area, the country's naval chief said today, of an area that both countries claim as their own. And astronomers have detected a group of stars more distant from Earth than any known within our own galaxy, almost halfway to a neighbouring galaxy. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, let's have a look at the day's papers with the journalist and author Terry Stiastany. Welcome, Terry. Good morning. I believe it's been a very cultural week for you. I've had, yes, I've had a, a sort of a really nice start to the year in that way. Uh, so I've seen a couple of films. I've seen the new Sam Mendes film, uh, Empire of Light, which is all about sort of set in a, a like sort of local cinema in the, 19, in the south coast of England in, in the 1980s, which sort of gave me real flashbacks to going to the cinema in the 1980s. I mean, even they, they'd obviously taken real pains to get things like the exact kind of sweets that you bought in, in, in a British cinema in the 1980s, uh, right? And I saw... It's been, it's been well-reviewed generally, but the people I've spoken to who've seen it have said that they were rather disappointed by it. I think it's a film that I really, really wanted to love it because that was the theme. I thought uh, there were some amazing performance in, performances in it. Um, Olivia Colman, of course, always good, and the, the young actor Michael Ward, who was playing opposite her, he was fantastic. Um, I, there wasn't as, as much cinema in it as I would have liked. So Toby Jones plays this uh, projectionist who's the one person in the film who does actually really love cinema and I would have liked a bit more of that and you know there's lots of sort of social commentary and things but some of it is a a little bit clunky Um, but it's beautifully shot um, and it's worth seeing definitely. And what um, what else has I've been to uh, the Cezanne exhibition at Tate Modern um, which is massively popular Uh, it's one of those sort of time tickets big exhibitions and even in a sort of on a rainy day in in January was absolutely packed uh, with people but 
But again, it's just uh, a really nice thing to do on a rainy day in January to go and see some beautiful sort of Provence landscapes and, and fruits and still lives. And uh, yeah, we we'll definitely recommend that. Oh, what a lovely way to cheer up in these horrible dark days. It is, if you're not in London, I should tell you, the weather outside is absolutely filthy, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of still dark. It's rainy and horrible. Uh, but... We're here and we're warm and it's uh, it's interesting because the papers are fascinating today. I love the stories you found about Germany and particularly the defence minister. Well, yes, this is, you know, obviously this is something that has been you know, rumbling on, which is not intended to be a pun all week, is the discussion um, about Germany and whether they are going to send tanks uh, to Ukraine or whether they're going to allow other countries to send uh, German-made tanks into Ukraine and, you know, what is a tank and all of this kind of discussion. Uh, the, the Financial Times has a big article here about uh, the background to these decisions and they are talking about the way that Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, has been making decisions about this. And the sort of subheadline here is German Chancellor contends with his party's pacifist history and risk of provoking Putin. Um, and they're talking about how uh, the Ukrainians are sort of seeing a pattern in the way Olaf Scholz has behaved. He's saying there's always a similar pattern. First they say no, then they fiercely defend their decision only to say yes in the end, uh, Dmitry Kuleba said. Um, and, but then, you know, Scholz's allies saying... Well, you know, he's proceeding cautiously. It needs to take account of how the German society is split and, you know, talk about this. But, yeah, as you say, um, domestically, Germany has another problem here, which is that the German defence minister has let it be known uh, that she is planning to step down. And she's possibly Christina Lambrecht and she's possibly going to announce her decision to resign as early as next week. Um, and she's been seen, according to uh, the online FT, as a weak leader of a ministry that's at a critical junk in its history and the German papers, as you would expect, are talking about this um, a lot. You know, they're, they're also widely expecting her to to officially announce her, her resignation next week. Now, but, um, you know, this is, you know, as ever, sort of domestic politics... Um, come into this. Uh, and Christine Lambrecht, she's been criticised for a, sort of a series of gaffes. Uh, it says, according to the FT, she's been one of the least popular ministers in the cabinet. She did this um, very awkward New Year's message. So she was uh, did a sort of little video on Instagram where she started trying to talk seriously about Ukraine and referring to the war. But she was doing this against the backdrop of the Berlin New Year's fireworks. So she's standing there with all the fireworks going off and people thought this was a little bit tone deaf, uh, to say the least. And so saying, oh, the conflict was associated for her with many special impressions and many encounters with interesting people. And oh I think everyone goodness. else is thinking, that's not so much uh, what it is, is, is about. Um, so there were calls for her resignation then. Um, and again, another story, which is in December 2021, she admitted in an interview that she did not know the various army ranks. OK, she was coming in as a, as a new minister. Maybe she didn't. Then five months later, she told another newspaper that she still hadn't learnt them. So, um, so picking up the Süddeutsche Zeitung says, you know, she obviously, for thing, reasons like that, had not hugely um, endeared herself to the armed forces. And, you know, they're describing this as the, the defence ministry sort of leaking. It's got saying it's got as many holes in it as, as a Swiss cheese. Um, and that's saying that she, although there have been other ministers who come in not knowing a huge amount about the military, that they had managed to either to learn it or to persuade people that, you know, that they that she was interested um, and that she wasn't really seen to be sort of fighting her corner in terms of 
you know, they're saying, well, if we've got to supply all of these this machinery and, and you know material to to Ukraine, you know, we need to have the resources ourselves. And so she wasn't really seen as as backing people up. And they also saying that this is kind of symbolic or symptomatic of how Schultz chooses people in his cabinet. Partly he's got this issue that he wants to have um, a gender balance in the cabinet, um, but also that he wants people who are not kind of showing huge initiative, people who kind of just knuckle down and, and do the work. So he'd rather have someone a bit sort of stolid, um, but who's not going to be any kind of political threat to him, I suppose. Um, and so now he's faced with, you know, the additional problem of having to, to find a new uh, defence minister who can manage to, to keep the armed forces kind of on side in, in a difficult time when he's trying to, to change policy. Such a crucial time because, of course, once Germany approves these Leopard 2 tanks uh, and they start actually arriving in Ukraine, that will be a game changer. Well, yes, and exactly. And you, Germany has, you know, obviously Germany's been widely criticised for its for its slowness in this and now all the other countries are sort of saying, well, look, we, we're quite happy to, to send on on these tanks. You know, what are you, what are you, are you going to finally allow us to do it? Um, and then, but, you know, there is a lot of criticism about from, you know, within the German uh, politics about saying the SPD leaderships mis- misunderstood the meaning of pacifism. Um, one of the FDP MPs is saying, you know, if you see the aggression of Russia, you see how brutal the fighting against Ukraine is. It's not unpacifist if you try to protect yourself. So, there's, you know, there's a more sort of fundamental you know, argument, I suppose, going on here. Yeah. So lots of gripes and, and uh, arguments within the German government. But of course, that's nothing new to us here in Britain, where we've been living with that for some time. <laughs> uh, so uh, lots of rumbling in uh, anti-Sunak rumbling here. Yes. And this is quite, you know, this is quite interesting. So, I mean, you know, Rishi Sunak has come in and he's been a bit more, you know, on, we've kind of got used to a slightly more normal politics again over the last couple of months where things tend to happen in a slightly more uh, predictable way than we had in, in 2022. Um, and there, But there's a few interesting articles um, about these these rumblings and, and other things going on in the in the British uh, papers this weekend. Um, in the, interestingly, The Times has an interview with the woman who spent uh, five years, as, as she, they describe her here in the headline, as Westminster's chief sleazebuster, um, so this is Catherine Stone, who is was the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, which is, you know, obviously a less exciting job title than sleazebuster in chief, as they then <laughs> describe her. Um, but she was she's quite interesting here. She is talking to the Times about the culture and what she found when she went into Westminster. And she was saying that she's saying that MPs still expected this kind of deference uh, from her, that she was just an official. And, you know, although she had powers to investigate things that she was, uh, she found, you know, there were lots of bullying allegations, um, lots of uh, talking about the, the MP Owen Patterson, who had broken lobbying rules and, you know, just saying that these times were really it was really difficult she said it was tough it was challenging and she had to kind of push on through to do her investigation and found that actually members of the public really supported her and she felt that that was that was great but still saying that she thinks that the standards need to be a bit stricter in some cases so for instance she says she didn't have powers to do as much about ministers financial interests so ministers can just register uh, register any donations they get with their government department rather than just um, registering gifts and stuff with the standards commissioner and she thinks that ministers actually should have a higher level of standards than than backbench MPs do and she sees it as the the other way around at the moment. Mm. And of course one person who's particularly guilty of not following the 
rules is the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And there's lots of speculation in the papers about the fact that he's positioning himself for a comeback. Yes, this seems to have been, again, sort of rumbling on all week, the kind of question of, you know, what is what is Boris Johnson up to? And a lot of kind of so-called friends of Boris Johnson sort of speculating about whether he might come back, whether he might uh, move seats in order to, to have a safer seat than he does in Uxbridge and sort of west of London at the moment, which he could possibly lose um, at the next election. He, you know, he ha- in, this is somewhere where he has followed the rules and declared what he has been given. But he, so far, he has benefited from, according to The Guardian here, more than two and a half million pounds in earnings from speeches, hospitality, free accommodation, gifts and donations to his new company, the office of Boris Johnson. So he has declared all of this. Um, he's got a one million pound uh, donation from uh, an investor who had previously donated to the Brexit party. But, of course, as this article points out, uh, he is still facing a lot of questions um, about what he was up to during the Partygate scandal. There are still... um, the Privileges Committee, which is going to inquire into whether he misled the Houses of Parliament and so um, whether they misled the Commons over what what the government was doing and about what he knew um, about what was going on, and of course an inquiry into um, COVID and how that was how that was handled. So you know, on one hand, there's a lot of people saying, "Oh, he's he's got all of this money, he's got all this funding coming in." On the other hand, people saying, "Well, look, there's an, actually an awful lot of questions which which still are hanging over him." Absolutely. Uh, and talking about former leaders. What on earth is Liz Truss up to? Well, yes, again, everybody seems to have a plan and everybody seems to be sort of uh, briefing journalists or having their friends brief journalists about what, what former prime ministers are, are up to this year. Um, and Liz Truss, uh, you know, obviously very only very briefly prime minister, sat, now has a group of backbench MPs. They're setting up a political group which doesn't yet have a name. Um, it says it does have a purpose which says it aims to enliven debate and influence the direction of the party. Uh, but they want to sort of pursue a kind of a trussite agenda, sort of making the case for growth, uh, making, you know, trying to criticise the government where it is trying to do things that it don't see um, moving in, in the right direction. Um, and But again, saying uh, there's a longer game here, somebody's saying. Liz Truss knows she carries huge sway with members. In opposition, we won't be where we are now. We'll be going to the base. So they're talking about, you know, the Conservative uh, members who, of course, voted, you know, voted for her and trying to, to push this agenda. You know, again, how popular that is with people who aren't Conservative members, uh, let alone and Conservative MPs, is, is a big question. But, you know, what's really going on here is looking ahead to past the next election. Obviously, a lot of Conservative MPs uh, expecting that they will lose the next election. And it's interesting, one form, unnamed former minister is quoted here in The Times um, saying, uh, you know, we've got to get behind Rishi, but that th- he's kind of ultimately doomed. Saying, well, that's, that's my words, not theirs. They're saying he could be the best politician in the world and there's no way he'd win. He could have the oratory skills of JFK and he still wouldn't win. It's done. And another minister saying, our time is up. There's no pathway to victory. We've had 14 years. Voters just want the other party now. Absolutely. Well, but a kind of political death there, I suppose. And also a lot of uh, famous deaths uh, in, in the last week or so. Lisa Marie Presley uh, just yesterday. Uh, but the death of Adolfo Kaminsky has been uh, commemorated. Uh, He is a forger who aided thousands of Jews. He's died at the age of 97. Fascinating story. Tell us about him. This is an an amazing life story, which I would love to read uh, more about. And the Financial Times has got an obituary for him. Um, As you say, he said... um, 
in he's talking about his uh, life during wartime. Um, he started off as a clothes dryer's apprentice um, and they learnt to remove stains, but then became a forger. He was recruited by the resistance and he would, could make up to 30 fake documents in an hour. Um, so he produced all sorts of things, near-perfect copies of identity cards, marriage certificates, baptism certificates, and food rationing um, coupons, which he allowed gave to people. And it says, yeah, estimated the group he belonged to saved the lives of up to 10,000 people, many of them uh, French Jews. And then also after um, his, his wartime work, he carried on... Um, he, he had supported, he worked for the French security services initially, and it says um, providing Holocaust survivors with false papers that enabled them to emigrate to Palestine. Um, but he then he was opposed to the French war in Indochina, and he supported uh, the Algerian independence cause. And then he started making his forgeries for, for other political causes that he supported later on. So he began uh, forging documents for uh, the FLN in Algeria, um, and then he also uh, made papers for for the ANC and opponents of dictatorships really around the world so Haiti El Salvador Chile uh, and Mexico and he he carried on forging until the early 1970s but he had worked so hard that he uh, was left partially blind but well, in a, an amazing and a, and a fascinating life. Absolutely, what a hero. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for being in with us this morning. I'm quite sure we'll be speaking to you again later on in the week. That is Terry Stiastini speaking to us here on Monocle on Saturday. After an extraordinary few weeks in the U.S. Capitol, Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack, spoke to a series of American historians to try and put our current fight for democracy into context and ask whether the past holds any clues to the future. It's been a pretty historic two weeks in Washington, even by American standards of the past few years. Republican lawmakers argued and nearly came to blows as they failed to elect a Speaker of the House of Representatives for the first time in a century. They finally settled their differences on a 15th vote for Speaker on January 6th, the same day, inside the very same building, that was ransacked by protesters believing an election had been stolen from Donald Trump two years earlier. And as if that weren't enough, meanwhile in Brazil, protesters there stormed that nation's Congress, Presidential Palace and Judiciary two days later, in scenes eerily similar to those of January 6, 2021. You can't really help but think there's something unique about this moment in history. Joe Biden has repeatedly called it an inflection point. On January 6 is a reminder that there's nothing guaranteed about our democracy. Remember learning in undergraduate school, high school, that every generation is required to earn it, defend it, protect it. Ironically, it is precisely the fact that the urgency of this moment is being dismissed by so many that makes this feel like one of those dangerous inflection points in history. We've reckoned maybe with one aspect of January 6th, which is that at least on one channel, we've actually done something formal and public for the record about what happened. This is Joanne Freeman, historian and host of her own weekly podcast and webcast. She's talking about the January 6th committee, which in the past few weeks has released its own exhaustive account of the events of that day. But having a record on its own is not enough. On the other hand, what happened on that day is a violent symptom of an ongoing attack. And so I would hope, even now two years later, that 
Americans aren't thinking, oh, it's two years later. And look, you know, it hasn't happened again. We're in great shape. Now, it's hardly the first time American democracy has been under threat. Even if we do like to picture ourselves as a sort of bastion of liberal values. Democracy has always been tumultuous in this country. It's been confrontational, chaotic, violent, upsetting. That's it. That's the norm. This is Fergus Bordewick, historian and author of the book Congress at War. There was no golden age when everybody uh, just got along. and It's absolutely imaginary. And the better you know American history, the more preposterous such a notion of history is. Our democracy in this country has cycled through periods of crisis many times, and this isn't the worst. Bordewick walked me through a number of worse examples. In 1876, there was a disputed election and talk of a coup up until about two days before the inauguration. In the 1930s, there was some open talk of a dictatorship in the United States as perhaps the only answer in the aftermath of the Depression. There were other moments of crisis, like the war in Vietnam and the civil rights era, or the Joe McCarthy hearings trying to root out American communists. But Bordewick says there is still something different in his mind about this moment in history. This is the first time we have had a significant political movement which denounces American institutions, denounces the system as such. There was left-wing rhetoric, particularly in the 1960s, attacking the system. But it was politically not very significant. But it's now central to a large component of the Republican Party. This is, of course, exactly what we've seen in Republican Kevin McCarthy's fight to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. Among the first acts of the House of Representatives this last week was to create a special committee to investigate what Republicans call the weaponization of government. Now, what's striking about this kind of rhetoric, Fergus Bordewick says, is that it wasn't even present in the American Civil War, kind of by definition the most divisive time in American history. The Confederacy, the Confederate States, when they seceded, basically copied the American institution. They didn't think there was anything wrong fundamentally with American institutions. They just wanted to protect slavery. And that's uncommon in American history, to have political forces that actually oppose our democratic system as such. You know, I think we'd be foolish to um, be complacent about that. Now, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but for one thing, nearly all of those other historic votes where the House failed to elect a speaker for an extended period of time, they were in the mid-1800s, shortly before the Civil War. Back then, the country's hopeless divide over slavery led to repeated deadlocks in Congress, not to mention the violent caning of Senator Charles Sumner by a fellow lawmaker. That time also led to the collapse of a once powerful political party, the Whigs, who disintegrated after a series of internal battles over slavery in the 1840s. Out of the ashes of the Whigs eventually emerged the anti-slavery Republican Party of today. And even if parties were less established at that time, it is a collapse that the party itself probably did not see coming. I think the leaders of the major parties, the Whigs and the Democrats in that era, likely imagined that their parties were potent and durable and institutionally effective. This is Corey Brooks, a history professor at York College, Pennsylvania, and author of a book on anti-slavery parties in the run-up to the American Civil War. 
However, in that era, there was more openness to the idea that political parties might be transient. Looking back at that time, I can't help but wonder if today's modern-day Republicans could be headed the way of the Whigs, if they can't get themselves on the same page. But Brooks says the comparisons between the Republicans and Whigs of yesteryear really only go so far. For one thing, parties were more transient in those days, and for another, slavery was such a major issue that it couldn't easily have been resolved within a party. Opposing slavery necessitated its own movement. So compare our moment to back then, and it doesn't really feel like we have that massive singular issue like slavery, which could lead us down the path to civil war, or for that matter to the breakup of the Republican Party. But then, maybe one of the most central lessons of history is that it's actually incredibly hard to see the precipice, and incredibly easy to dismiss the warning signs. The important thing about this moment is that we don't know what the heck is going to happen. We have no idea! This is Joanne Freeman again. This is my closing statement for the interview. Given the extreme contingency of this, given that we have no idea what's going to happen, and that it's possible in all the instability that maybe we can do something good, don't sleep on this moment. Don't assume democracy survives, it's going to go back to quote-unquote normal. Don't. Keep your eyes open to what's happening, and if you need to, step forward and state, demand, organize, do things that will help push the nation towards inclusivity and democracy in a way that will seem like an improvement from the past. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits, and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil, and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today, or subscribe to get instant access online. Zurichista, da Londra, is Tokyo, van Hong Kong, Astronto, in Los Angeles, Monocle 24 ga okurishimasu. Now, here's our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his take on the stories of the week. We learned this week that the United States Republican Party had concluded that submitting to the will of someone called McCarthy couldn't possibly go wrong a second time. This is a profound and astute historical reference to Senator Joseph McCarthy, see, the paranoid red-baiting tub-thumper who flourished circa the 1950s before the patience of his colleagues and the resilience of his liver wore thin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
We learned that whatever other drawbacks and detriments may be legitimately ascribed to modern-day Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, and we don't have all day, he does not lack what his friends and family may describe as persistence and what others might well call an absolutely boneheaded refusal to look reality in the face. We learned that Congressman McCarthy will be the new Speaker of the House of Representatives only after 15 goddamn rounds of voting. That was easy, huh? I never thought we'd get up here. Don't get too comfortable, champ. We learned once again from this absurd saga, although Speaker McCarthy and indeed his party as a whole still seem like they haven't, something of the perils of indulging the unhinged in the hope that you can co-opt them or that they'll calm down eventually. Spoiler alert, Mr. Speaker, as of this broadcast, you can't and they won't. For we learned that the forces thwarting McCarthy's long-nurtured hopes of clutching the gavel that's the one, were not in fact his official opposition, the Democratic Party, however much they might have enjoyed the show, but his internal opposition, the Republican Party's Freedom Caucus, an association of kooks, cranks, weirdos, foil hatters and dingbats whose theme song could appropriately be one long howl at the moon. We, for one whimsical news monologue, look forward to seeing how Speaker McCarthy assembles a coherent apparatus of governance from such components as these. There's possible satanic worship and maybe that all these scary things that, that people talk about on what's considered conspiracy, th conspiracy sites and conspiracy theories really may be true. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, representative of the 14th District of Georgia. And well done there, the 14th District of Georgia. But in the interests of bouncing this week's monologue along while maintaining at least some measure of structural integrity, we also learned that Green had become the unwitting star of one of those reliably hilarious episodes in which some or other conservative politician appropriates the work of some or other not-conservative musician and gets yelled at by the artist in question as a consequence. These always work well for us as one of the more time-consuming aspects of putting these monologues together is coming up with the appropriate background music and or noises, so when a given thing we learned also furnishes an inbuilt soundtrack, it does save us an awful lot of stuffing around. Another busy week for the General Muttered Agreement crew whose devotion to their duty is an example to us all. Anyway, now playing behind us is Still D.R.E., a 1999 hit for Dr. Dre, lead vocals by Snoop Dogg. Dr. Dre is the name, I'm ahead of my gang, still puffing my leaves, still with the beats, still not loving police. We learned that Congresswoman Green felt that this tune was an apt backing for an idiotic video she posted online in the wake of Speaker McCarthy's torment, and we, and indeed she, swiftly learned that Dr. Dre thought otherwise, and we learned that Dr. Dre's learned friends seem like people you would rather have on your side than the other side, as they phrased their cease and desist letter thus. 
You are wrongfully exploiting this work to promote your divisive and hateful political agenda. One might expect that as a member of Congress, you would have a passing familiarity with the laws of our country. It's possible, though, that laws governing intellectual property are a little too arcane and insufficiently populist for you to really have spent much time on. Which, to reduce this highfalutin legalese to terms that Congresswoman Green might just about comprehend, is a coat hanger from the top rope. If we have learned one thing about Congresswoman Green, however, it is that Congresswoman Green never learns, and she will doubtless be further delighting the listeners and indeed the compiler of these monologues in due course. And we learned, much to our regret, that these six sighing strings have been forever silenced. That's the guitar solo from the 1972 Stevie Wonder deep cut Lookin' For Another Pure Love, played by Jeff Beck, who left us this week, aged 78. It is, if we're honest, an excruciatingly hipster choice of tribute, picked by way of reminding of the sprawling nature of the incalculably influential career of a guitarist probably best remembered for loudly and forcefully kicking out the jams with 1960s proto-rockers the Yardbirds, which we shall get to presently, fear not. Jeff Beck plays us out this week, duelling with Jimmy Page on a Yardbird song which feels, right now, appropriately titled, Stroll On. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. You made me cry, but me, you didn't see, future poor, I love no more. Thank you very much to Andrew Muller there. Uh, and that's it for this week. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, and the rest from me and the rest of the Monocle on Saturday team, goodbye and thanks for listening.